You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years of This is Emeritus Rex. I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and I'm here with Rabbi Ruven Yeshua Pupko. Rabbi Pupko, it's so difficult to describe the last 10 months, describe the year that's known as 2020. This soon will be in the back of our, the back headlights. But one of the factors, the twin factor, according to many with COVID, is the reexamination of, especially in the United States, of the uh, pervasive, and some will say even systematic, inherent racism and much of what we've heard from the president-elect is that this country needs to heal and change and needs to react and fix and push the country out of this systemic racism. But it really isn't just Joe Biden's election. Um, as George Floyd's death indicated, there was an incredible amount of hurt, pain, a uh, sense of frustration. The, the, the um, New York Times piece, uh, the 1619 Project, I believe, um, indicating that America is really built on slavery. Now, I know that in many ways, Canada doesn't necessarily share that history, but I think that as a North American rabbi, you are also, in a way, in in the spotlight about what are we doing in our shoals, what are we doing in our communities. We know that um, there have been a number of attempts to come to terms with the Black Lives Matter movement. We know that there have been a number of forums, there's been a number of uh, uh, conversations that have happened. And before you respond, I want you also to give us and many of the people listening uh, uh, a sense of how we are to deal with a lot of the ugly anti-Semitic aspects that we are hearing, that we have heard and continue to hear from members of the, of the Black Lives Movement matter. And you know, we've talked a lot about COVID. We've talked a lot about the vaccine. Is this a Jewish matter? Is there something that you and the other rabbis of, of synagogues can do in a real way uh, to respond to this. So go ahead. You know, it's, it's, it's very relevant. There are many different doorways into this conversation. Many different. I would say that this presents a very profound challenge uh, to the Jewish community. And it prevents uh, a profound challenge, not only because of some anti-Semitic incidents associated with Black Lives Matter. You had uh, synagogues and Jewish stores that were vandalized uh, in Los Angeles. You had it happen in Washington and other places where these riots uh, uh, took place. We also know that before COVID, the number one issue on the Jewish agenda was anti-Semitism. And there was this profound denial of the source of a lot of that anti-Semitism. Uh, you had Jews being uh, violently assaulted on the streets of New York 
seemingly every other week. And uh, Bill de Blasio coming out and saying it's white supremacists. And then even the New York Times reporting that the captain, the head, the head of the hate crime unit in New York said that not a single perpetrator of the anti-Semitic violence on the streets of New York uh, in, in 2019, in early 2020, that not a single one of them was a white supremacist. All of them, in fact, came from minority communities. All of them came from minority communities. Let me just just interject. I knew you, uh, if you weren't going to say it, but since it's so close to where I'm sitting, the Jersey City uh, attack. I was about to say the Jersey City attack. The attack at Muncie on Hanukkah, those were attacks carried out by African-Americans. That the violence perpetrated in urban America by African-Americans against Jews was, it was, and probably continues to be a serious issue. Again, COVID put a... uh, put a blanket on a lot of it. Uh, but there was terrible violence. And and yet, people continue to use anti-Semitism as a weapon against their political adversaries. So Bill de Blasio will call it, you know, generated by Trump and white supremacists, right? The fact is, the fact is, in this bizarre world in which we live, anti-Semitism is exhibited by the extreme left and by the extreme right. The extreme right is generally more violent than the left. The extreme right is Pittsburgh, is San Diego, those synagogues that where people actually died and were murdered. That's the extreme right. That's white supremacists. When you had white supremacists wanting to maintained the statue in Charlottesville of, of, of Robert E. Lee, I think it was, uh, and demonstrating. And for some crazy reason, what are they chanting as they march around that Civil War era statue? What are they chanting? They're chanting, Jews will not replace us. Now, I don't think yours aid, and I know my aid, that didn't, was not involved, were not involved in the Civil War. I mean, what that has to do with us, I have no idea. Um, yet, that was the slogan. You know, the idea that Jews, and what again, I'm not sure people understand what Jews will not replace it means. When white supremacists say that, they don't think that Jews are replacing whites. What they think is that Jews are involved in this crazy conspiratorial plot to bring immigrants into the country to replace the whites. So that, that's what it means, and that's what the, the shooter in Pittsburgh believes. So, so the extreme right, we know how dangerous they are, but the extreme right doesn't really have a platform. The extreme right is not granted legitimacy. The supreme, uh, the, the, the white supremacists are not accepted in civilized society. Leftists who will say horrible things about the Jews and about the state of Israel are granted platforms and are, in fact, uh, accepted into civilized society. Al Sharpton, who ran two violent pogroms against the Jews, one of Freddie Thatcher, Martin Harlan, and better known, the Crown Hatzerite, would end up in the murder of Uncle Rosenbaum where he's screaming about Jewish diamond dealers, you know, was given a show on MSNBC. And then forgiven by the reform movement of America and the ADL for reasons I'll never understand. Ralph Warnock, who was now running for in the, you know, in the... In uh, Georgia? In Georgia in, in the early January uh, with, uh, because, you know, for the... Uh, for Senate seat. One of the two Senate seats that are up in Georgia because no one passed the 50% threshold in November. Ralph Warnock has preached like Jeremiah Wright, you know, from in Chicago, 
against Israel repeatedly. Talked about Jews using, Israelis using Palestinian kids for target, I mean, crazy things. And 120 reform rabbis come out and endorse it. I mean, it's, you know, so there is a serious problem that the left has in understanding its anti-Semitism. And not only that, what makes, now, I know you can, you can accuse me of having conflated two things. Is a black teenager who hits a chassid in Borough Park, is that left-wing anti-Semitism? Obviously, it's different. I don't know what that what what it calls that, but there's no question that the violence, the pervasive violence that goes on in urban centers, perpetrated by blacks against Jews, is something that people are in denial about. Now, the other phenomenon, of course, is the left-wing anti-Semitism of the likes of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and, and others uh, on the left and, and Linda Sarsour. I mean, you read about what happened in the women's movement after Trump gets elected in the big women's march, and the flagrant, flamboyant, persistent, ugly anti-Semitism that was articulated in those planning meetings, which has been now copiously detailed, which led to resignations. And, 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 and it was, again, a, a horrific and a scary story. You know, the most recent story was this, you know, this uh, internet group that for three months expelled any Jew who said something nice about Israel and the Los Angeles-based women's internet group. It, the, the left-wing animus against Jews is dispiriting, bewildering, and it is very, very destructive. It's particularly destructive for young Jews on college campus who embrace parts, parts if not much, of the liberal agenda and are then excluded if they show any loyalty or fealty to the Jewish community or support for the state of Israel. Because if you are in any way identified with the defense of the state of Israel, you are persona non grata in, in these uh, enlightened circles of the woke. And that has a devastating impact. We had it here at Montreal, McGill University. It's happened in many university states where people who are on city, who are running for positions on student council, are told they cannot be there because they went on a birthright trip. They cannot be there because they posted something pro-Israel on, 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 on their Facebook page or Instagram. That's the reality. And, and, and I think what people also don't realize is there's this critical race theory, which started out in a, in a handful of university classrooms, which has now come to dominate, dominate the thinking uh, on, on the left and has created this woke culture is, a, is, is almost as if it was surgically designed to always exclude a Jew from ever being thought of as a victim of bias and surgically designed to always include the Jew as a perpetrator of racism, bigotry, because it is all seen through the prism of power and privilege. And if in fact you are materially comfort, you must be the bad guy. And the only people, the only evidence of bias that is spoken of is inequality. That's it. Bias means inequality. Bias means poverty. And if you are poor, you are immediately granted the fact of a victim. You are immediately assumed to be the victim of some form of bias or bigotry. And if you are somebody who does have material security, then you 
not only are made to feel guilty about it, you have to confess your sins, and you are now part of the problem of white privilege. And you know, I was in a debate with somebody at McGill University about this a few months ago, but somebody accused me of enjoying white privilege, and I said to them the following. It's a bit of a non sequitur, but I think not. I said, let me, let me explain something to you. Jews lived in Poland for 800 years. <clears throat> 800 years. And no Pole in the history of the Jews in Poland, when they used the word Pole, ever thought of a Jew. When they wanted to talk about a Jew, we know what they said. They said Jew. Jews lived in Russia for hundreds of years. And when they when, and when Russians thought of, used the word Russian, they never thought of a Jew. When they wanted to talk about us, they used the word Evrei. Jews lived in Arab lands for, for not just hundreds, but many, many years. And when they used the word Moroccan or Algerian or Arab, they never thought of a Jew. When they wanted to talk about a Jew, they said Yehud. And I said, when a white supremacist used the word white, trust me, they don't think of me. This is a bizarre phenomenon that Jews are now you know, accused of enjoying uh, white privilege. So we live in a very difficult time where because of critical race theory, because of you know, the woke culture, Jewish kids are made to feel guilty for the fact that with self-reliance, courage, dignity, and persistence, the Jewish people accomplish so much. And if you use the words like achievement, you are now accused of being a racist. If you say you can't judge people by the color of their skin, by the content of their character, as Martin Luther King did, you are now a racist. If you lecture the black community on black self-reliance and on the necessity for blacks to take responsibility for their families, like Barack Obama did less than five years ago, you'd be today accused of being a racist. So we live in a strange time, a difficult time. Yeah, so you definitely uh, took an interesting uh opening into this uh, subject, I say you probably took like a steamroller and basically uh, smashed the complete question down and you flattened it uh, into uh, an all pervasive discussion of the left, which of course I think this is definitely part of. And I, of course I was sitting here, you know, mesmerized by by your skill in doing this, Rabbi Pupko. But what I would... <laughs> what, what, what I would respond to is the following. Yes, uh, you know, we, and I'm going to quote someone, you're going to be very surprised. Rabbi Eli Brudny, who has become somewhat of a speaker for the the G'dayli Teira, Rabbi Shmuel Brudny's son, uh, uh, a young man, really our age, who has really uh, become a a person of very, very great uh, significance, before COVID, as we were in the Jersey City aftermath, spoke about and wrote about the necessity for the Froome community to own up to its racism. Now, now, and, and that's part of what I wanted to put on the table. The very wonderful neighbors uh, in Jersey City of the yeshiva there, who they got along with, but were black, Many of them, sort of, as much as they didn't have an animus in a violent way, and they they expressed an understanding of the frustration of those murderers who came in to kill Chassidish kids. And I just wanted, when I interrupted you before, I wanted to emphasize, although it was a uh, a, a grocery store 
where the slaughter occurred, the target was the, the, target the, target was the yeshiva. The target was actually the, the children who were meant to be mowed down. And even though that came out to be true, there were members of the community, of the, of the school board, who sort of said, well, you know, you reap what you sow, in a way. Right. And, and that was the idea that the, the Chassidah Shechevra had, and let's talk about, for our listeners who don't live in Jersey, who don't live in New York, who don't know, there is a need to spread out of the Williamsburg or right. any of the centers in, in Brooklyn, in New York, and Jersey, which is just across the Hudson, is a place where that could happen, and Jersey City is right there. And therefore, they came in and bought up real estate. They bought up homes. But as Rav Eli Brudny said, there was an attitude that still remained, an attitude of dismissiveness, an attitude of that needed to be worked on. Right. And and you and I know we talked about this when we speak about our our shared history in Nair Yisrael, which although it was fifty years ago or whatever it was, yeah. we know that it was infused with a, a racist tinge, and there was a, a and we talked right. about. Okay. Here's right. what I would say. So so well, let me just finish my point here after your steamrolling. But I just wanted to say <laughs> that 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 yes, it's unfair to paint us with that brush. It's unfair to say we're the man. But within the unfairness of the complaint that we are part of that white infrastructure that that put them on the slave ships and that is still oppressing them, as, as, as wrong as that is, does the Black Lives Matter movement and what it was spawned from force us to say, you know what? We got to work on this. The the content and the details are wrong, but there is, despite the fact that you can be black and Jewish, the fact, despite the fact that I love the pictures of the uh, Ethiopian Jews who are saved by Operation Moses, there still needs to be worked on as the Amanivchar. There still needs there's there's things that need to be worked on to destroy any sense of racial superiority and 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 we should work on that idea of brotherhood. So go ahead. Okay, that I agree with 100. percent There's no question. And we're talking here about different communities, and and, and you're right to draw that distinction. I mean, when the uh, experience of a uh, of a uh, of a young Jew in uh, in the Midwest who goes to a college campus and is confronted by you know, the notions of white privilege and intersectionality is a very different experience than of a, uh, of a Jew in, in urban America. And there's no question that the Orthodox community has a problem with racism. But I wanted to find that problem. You know, when we were kids, racism meant being able to live where you want to live, go to school where you want to go to school, and work where you want to work. Um, and in the main, those barriers have fallen for the African-American community. Social racism continues to exist. There's no question. And there's no question that the way uh, blacks are spoken about in the ultra-Orthodox community is very ugly. It's very ugly. And there's also no question that the way some of our friends behave and conduct themselves when the neighborhoods expand, 
whether it's Lake Wooded Pond River or Jersey City, uh, whether it's with black neighbors or white neighbors, could be with a little bit more humility and a lot more humility. And there is no question that the disparaging of Gentiles in general and blacks specifically in the the ultra-Orthodox community is a serious, uh, serious problem. And uh, although there are uh, many instances of good relations and of healthy relations, um, it, it is a, it is a, it's pervasive, if not systemic, in the ultra-Orthodox community. It is the racism, and it's ugly. Some of it's very ugly. I have to say, and I, I don't like to say nice things about Chabad, but uh, in this case, I will. Uh, in Crown Heights, after the riots in the 90s, there were enormous efforts made by members of the Chabad community to repair relations with the black, with the black community in Crown Heights. And that's, that's really a model. That's really a model. They've really taken great... Uh, great steps in, in, uh, towards reconciliation. Really great steps. But, you know, it's from the Parsha Shavuah. I'll tell you, you know, Parsha's Vayigash uh, is the story of how a Jew named Yosef is, um, is, by the way, you're only half on the screen. You should be more on the screen. You're making me nervous. Um, <laughs> you know, how Yosef becomes... The face. I am your. Av- um, I'm listening the, with, with with open ears. Believe me, I'm right here. And I, I've got, I've no, got I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about the uh, the visuals. And so Yosef becomes the one who takes all the property away from all the Egyptians. They they all become serfs in a sense. Although it's a pretty good serf deal, he gets to keep eighty percent. It's a it, you know, and, and that by the way is how many people explain anti-Semitism in America. That means in the riots around Martin Luther King's assassination, many Jewish stores were vandalized. And, P- and sociologists would talk about how Jews have become frontline capitalists, right? The Wasp is sitting in the, in the offices of Chase Manhattan on, uh, on, on, you know, on, on 6th Avenue, and, and the Jew is the one in the, behind the counter, the dry cleaners, the liquor store, and the, the clothing store. We're the frontline capitalists. So uh, we became the face of American capitalism in urban America. And and especially in, in places like New York and Chicago and St. Louis and Philadelphia, so so the animus of the of the African American against the white power structure, the first target became the Jew, of course, in, in many cases. But but again, that's a whole different phenomenon of what we're talking about because what you spoke of, with great eloquence and precision, is is absolutely correct. It's inarguable. There's no question that the in the Orthodox, particularly ultra Orthodox community, there is a serious problem. And Rabbi Burdi's right. He's absolutely right. We, those children were raised with lack of regard and respect for uh, for African Americans. They are spoken about in disparaging terms. And although there is no alternative word in Yiddish, the word they use is an ugly word today. It's right. It's word. almost like the N word. If we right, uh, right. If using that word for an African American who knows those words because they right. get familiar with it. I mean, again, technically it's not, but it is. You know, linguistically, it's not. But it is. In other words, no Hasidic Jew ever turned to his child and says, I love you like I love... Right? It's never used in a positive (laughs) It's used pejoratively. Let's be blunt. It is. You know, when I hear that word from a 95-year-old, all right, it's slightly forgivable because the fact is there is no other word in Yiddish. There is no other word in Yiddish. 
right? And that's the word. And the word is. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. My grandmother did not use those words. She oh, did not mean, use. She did not. She did not use the word shvarza or shocher. She didn't use those words. I'll, I'll say them. I'm not afraid. I'm the podcast. Oh, I won't say. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, but I said my grandmother did not use. She used the words. And 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 remember, my dad um, was a uh, slum lord. And I actually grew up in a in a neighborhood that became increasingly uh, mixed and then almost totally African American. They were a lot of my good friends when I was growing up. But my grandmother would say, "The Tsiganers. A Tsiganer is a gypsy. You right. know what a Tsiganer is? Yeah, like, yeah. Like, like the gypsies. Like she didn't. Uh, the Tsiganer is cool, You know, in other words, these were people. No, but I always, when I heard the word Tsiganer, I always, I, I maybe I misunderstood because I heard it as a kid. I always thought it meant like somebody. I thought it was like almost like the Yiddish equivalent of freeloader. Yeah, yeah, a, a gypsy, somebody who's not really right. th- doesn't have a place. She, right. That was her term always. The tzigan. Oh yeah. And that was more of a, a description, I guess, of the economic social right. status that she saw, not their skin color. The tziganers. <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you. I mean, listen. You know, many of the civil rights leaders that we grew up with and listening to were alumni of schools called the Rosenwald School. I mean, you have some connection to Chicago. Julius Rosenwald was one of the founders of Sears Roba. Made a lot of money. Where did he pour his money? Into philanthropy to assist young blacks in the South. And he built a whole uh, a whole network of schools in the South uh, for, for African-American kids, which was a trigger to a lot of achievement. And we know Schwartz and Goodman, the only white people ever killed in the Civil Rights Movement, are two young Jews from New York who went down to organize... Uh, in, in Mississippi, yes. Uh, and and we know there's a long history of Jews supporting the uh, the civil rights movement. The NAACP was founded in the offices of a Jewish organization. We all know that, or we should all know that story. But there is no, and there's no question that Jews are of the least racist Americans. But there's no question there is a serious problem of racism in the ultra-Orthodox community. Remember something, Jews voted for... You know, I, I, I need to push back just one more time. I don't think it's just the ultra-Orthodox. I think it's even what we would call um, the standard Orthodox, old-time YU community. There's also a sense, especially, I think, those that are um, veterans of urban difficulties who have moved out to the suburbs maybe, and stuff like that. I, maybe, you know, I, 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 I always saw it as a New York thing. When I was a kid, I always thought, well, New York Jews are racist because, you know, they're, you know, of their experiences on the streets of, uh, you know, wherever they, whatever neighborhood. So, from. so, you know, we don't have, you know. Get, no, you're right. I, I don't know. I, 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 so I, I think we would be wrong to just say, maybe. you know, it's in the, it's in the, yes, clearly the more insulated you are, the more someone that represents the antithesis of where you are is going to be treated with a lot less respect. But I think. The, the even people who don't wear spudics and strimos and have payas but are part of that from world or even the uh, right, the the standard middle of the road yeshivish slash modern i think there's still and i've heard it and seen it there still is a dismissive attitude um and 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 a a condescending attitude as well now again you talked before when you were on your uh, stump there. You talked about. <laughs> I'm not going to let you forget that. But you you talked about, um, you know, lecturing. You know, like you know, Bill Cosby, of course, did a similar thing before he uh, was exposed. This was one of his arguments uh, was about 
black empowerment and you should get an education and, and et cetera. Um, but when, of course, when Jared Kushner, uh, right before the election, came out there and again, again, unfortunately, put his foot in his mouth and spoke about this using the same message of get an education. The, the opportunities are there for you. Don't uh, devolve into a welfare uh, parasite, whatever it is. Those type of statements coming from anyone white, as you're saying, are interpreted as very, very negative. And, but even when they come from blacks, they're, they're interpreted that way. Jason Riley and Thomas Sowell and other great writers who are more conservative in the black community are disparaged. And the fact is that, in other words, okay, let's, okay, let's roll back a little bit. Let's say, okay, here's what we're supposed to believe in America today. That every human being who was, who was unemployed is a victim. It's not because they got high every night when they were in high school. It's not because, you know, they didn't take uh, their lives seriously. It's because they are victims. Right. And everyone knows that's not true. Everyone knows there are a lot of white people and a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Hispanics who suffer economic deprivation because they chose to live in a foolish way. Okay, that is, that's the reality. That's the reality. However, you're not permitted to say that. We have to assume everybody is unemployed, worked really hard in school, and tried to get a job, and always showed up on time for work, and did everything right. But the system, the, the, man, the man, the man put them down. More okay? than right, right. And the system, of course, And it's not is, true. Right. And it's uh, not true. Right. So, right. I, 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 you know, you, you're not going to get an argument from me. I, I agree with you. My question, though, is, and you sort of answered it, I think. You don't, for example, in your shul, if everybody gets the vaccine or, and everything's going to go back to normal, is Rabbi Pupko going to run some um, race sensitivity programs? Are you going to address this? Are you going to have a night in the shul to, to, to put this on the table? Or do you think it's, a, it's, it's, it's completely uh, trumped up type of thing? I'm sorry for using that term. but it's I, not- listen, I, listen, Montreal is different than New York, but here's what I will say is that this issue is not a hot issue in, in Montreal. It's not. Uh, there's a black community in, in Montreal. Of course, we have very good relations with the black community. Uh, they've been in my show. I've been. Uh, I, I, I've cooperated with them on many issues. Uh, there is complaints about the police, but again, with the numbers and the and the, the, the pervasiveness is nowhere near to what anything is is in the states. Not even comparable. But. I know that I've, before I've, I've I've heard the racism. I've heard what you've heard. You know, I, I, I remember you mentioned Operation Solomon, right, or Operation Moses when the Ethiopians came to Israel, and I gave a wonderful uh, speech about. Uh, when I say wonderful, it was wonderful that it happened. I gave a speech about that wonderful phenomena. I wasn't praising myself. At least I, if I, did, I it was accidental. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a speech about how what a miracle is. And, and, and a guy, and an old, you know, cynical Jew comes over to me at kid and he goes, "Yeah, Rabbi, but would you let your daughter marry one of them?" Right, and that's that. That's to which my... I answered. I'll tell you what I answered. I said I would hope she would be worthy. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just wasn't. I, I just don't understand it at all. I mean, by the way, the irony of this conversation is if you talk to Ethiopian Jews in Israel. They'll tell you the warmest welcome they got was from Orthodox community, from the Dati Lumi community. 
Tativu me. Who doesn't who doesn't see Jewish identity through the prism of you know of the, of the social Judaism, but of halachic Judaism. You know, uh, uh, by the way, I, I, I probably should mention in this regard, when we talk about the Haredi Judaism and, um, you know, Nissen Black, of course, has become a, uh, a, a sort of a semi-celebrity in the Haredi world. He is this rapper who uh, became a Chassidish fellow. He became Chassid and he goes with right. the, the Langer Echel. And uh, he, there's, there's a lot of photos of him with brachas from Chaim Kanievsky yeah, 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 and others. So, you know, it, it's clear to me that Ravelli Brudny is tapping not only on a truth about the reality, but also about the possibility of us uh, coming to terms with it and recognizing it. I mean, ultimately, um, I, I, despite the fact that Jews were slave owners and slave traders, and you said they were frontliners. Yeah, but mi, mi, one second. But wait, 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 let me just finish the point. The Minimal. point is, the, the point though is, yeah, the point is, is that I, I think it's, it doesn't take much to crack the veneer of uh, and, 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 and to work on this and to and, and, and at least let me just put it a different way, at least to run these programs to offset the the noise from the left. So like I would say, again, if you would be if I would be you and I would have the type of influence you have and would be able to speak to my colleagues in the rabbinical world in the United States, I would say it's a great thing to run these programs. And it's a great thing to bring African-Americans into the show. It's a great thing. And even though there's a lot of left-wing um, lies about what the U.S. is and what systemic racism right. is, we're, if we fight that, if we, if we push back in, in a vocal way, it, we're going to be seen as part of the right. problem. Right. That's the problem. The problem is the minefield that people have is, well, if I do a thing on racism, that means I'm Black Lives Matter. That means I'm anti-Trump. That means I embrace the Black Lives Matter manifesto on Israel, which is, again, the only foreign country they ever spoke about has been Israel. So there are problems there, although they've not repudiated it, or I'm going to say repudiated, maybe too strong a word, but at least erased it. The um, here, It's become politicized to the point where it's taking sides, and we should try to detach ourselves from the politicization of the issue, and still speak the words that we as pe- as a Jewish people should always have spoken, which is, in fact, that every human being on God's earth is created in the image of God. And any disparaging of the black community in a racist manner is an ugly sin against the, the ethic of Torah. There is no question. And if we, uh, and, and, if, and if we verbally disparage that is an affront to what we believe in. However, you, you, you ha- we have to do it detached from two things. Detached from the polarization of the left, which seeks to package the racist, the anti-racist movement in a way which politically harms us and isn't historically accurate, like the 1619 Project or anything else. We have to speak the truth. And also, and also detached from the right, which wants, <clears throat> which wants to portray every bit of anti-racism as a political assault on them, which is not, which is what it shouldn't be. We need to say the words that need to be said, right? We need to speak out not only against 
bigotry in housing and employment and education, but the bigotry of speech. Because we as a Jewish people understand the power of speech. We understand how beautiful it is and how destructive it can be. We understand that. And therefore, we need to correct it. The only time in my recent life that I've ever heard ugly words from Jews has been from Orthodox Jews and ultra-Orthodox Jews. Uh, I mean, you don't hear those words from other people. I agree with you that in many ways society has moved, and many and, and, and there are many Jews who have like have, have gone along with that, and have definitely advanced. Um, and even if we would say we don't need it, but I think the once that flag was raised, whether it was right to be raised or not. Like I'm, I'm sort of like a scared guy. We've got to go out there and put the flag up of anti-racism, and we need to actually. Okay, what what did we do? We ran a forum about understanding uh, the African American experience. Good job. Okay, we showed Amistad. We showed uh, uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Whatever it is we did, we need to be part of that program because, like it or not, that is the zeitgeist. And I don't think we can fight intellectually about it, because especially with Biden as the president. So, so in, in my mind, what we don't lose anything. What we do is, you know, listen. You're talking about political pragmatism, with which I can't argue. But I would right. just say, from a principal position, we should not tolerate the the disparagement on the part of our co-religionists, the disparagement that that, that is still too frequent. Uh, we, we can't we can't permit it. We cannot permit the strategy of the African American community. Uh, we know we know what it means, and therefore we need to do better. We know, us again. We know that that's the ethic of Judaism. We know what it means to be the outsider, the one who's alienated and disenfranchised, and we're supposed to take that feeling and make sure it doesn't happen to other people. Well, that's what we have to do. And but. It doesn't mean buying into the political agenda of people who, with whom we cannot agree. And it doesn't mean being silent because we're afraid that it associates us with that agenda. We have to say what's right. Ignoring the, the spin from the right and the spin from the left, we have to say what's right. You can be an anti-racist Republican. I, I, it just, I, I think there's, as you said, the, the minefield is so extreme. The Geiger counter is so sensitive that it, 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 it's, it's – and I, I don't think that we should be uh, cowered into, uh, you know, parroting, you know, inane wrong things that, that constantly say how evil we are. But on the other hand, I, I am worried. And maybe you, you – you know <laughs> – this is where I, you know, I, I, I just to sum up here. This is where we really miss someone like Jonathan Sachs or someone like that. Right. Maybe someone who who would be able to 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 channel that intense beauty of our religion, and 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 to be able to express it in a way where the left constructs wither away in comparison. Right? Listen, I'll tell you the problem I've had. The problem I have is the following. Is that 
let's say you want to collaborate with other Jews on the Black Lives Matter issue or racism in general. The problem is too many of, of, of you know people we you know we love but are in a different political persuasion the on the left insist on saying things that we can't tolerate, or at least I can't personally. I can't tolerate someone telling me that we Jews have to admit our privilege. We Jews have to admit we're this. This this these flamboyant acts of penance and confession that the left insists on in this woke culture. It to me is, is false, it's offensive, and, and it's and is, again historically inaccurate. I I, I, I can't I, I just can't. However, with equal fervor, with more fervor, I can't tolerate our friends in the in the in the Orthodox, ultra Orthodox community who use words that are obscene, who believe things that are just wrong and un Jewish. And behave in a profoundly inappropriate way. So, we as as the as the two normal Jews left in the world, you and I, right, <laughs> have to learn how to speak with vigor against racism, without buying critical race theory, and with honesty and confront you know the, the voices on the uh, uh, in the Orthodox community that. Uh, again, are, are, are disfigured by their own races. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I discussed with my partner on one of my other programs, uh, Rizka Daraisa, we actually talked about um, Torah Masora, or, or, or even to the right of Torah Masora, creating some programming that would, because it starts from, you know, what you hear at your father's table and what you hear from your Rebbe, and, and, and there needs to be, I think that can be crafted in a way uh, that's that, that's quite normal and and, and pleasant. I'll end with one little anecdote. In my um, rocking um, career, I don't know if that was the right word, but in my uh, career that has been buffeted around in many places, I once served as a um, secular teacher, secular education teacher, uh, in one of the Hasidic schools in Brooklyn, not far from where you used to live, where I would yeah, yeah. come to your house often, on Coney Island Avenue and Avenue L. Oh, yeah. And, and um, that's where the school was. And uh, during the uh, week of, uh, of, of January, preceding Martin Luther King's birthday, I ran programs for these kids where we did a number of workshops and, 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 and worksheets and discussions. And there, this was a program that was sanctioned by the state. It was called Section 1. And, um, uh, you know, I took kids out of their normal classroom. Right. And the, um, the monitor from the city, the state or the city, came to observe my classroom. And she said to me, she says, I've been doing this. You know, you've had this programming here for you know, 10, 15 years. This is the first time I have ever seen a teacher teach about Martin Luther King and teach about these subjects. And I, again, this is uh, the, what I'm referring to. We, and that is something which I think can be with people like Ellie Brudney and others I think it's something that could be accomplished. And I think it will, with education, with understanding, um, 
with movies about Operation Moses and Solomon, I, I think that change will occur. And um, I, I, have, I have faith in your ability to be articulate and to be passionate. I'm not sure if I have as much faith, Rabbi, in what's with everyone else. I, I think this is the type of thing that th- this is going to be a struggle. And I think, again, we, I, I'm worried about being able to push back in a way that we don't get um, tarnished with that terrible brush. This, and believe me, it's, it's, it's ugly to have to accept a lie, but I'm not sure who can be the spokesman uh, to be able to, to, to make it clear. And, you know, in that sense, I guess we're going to have to sort of hope for the best here. So that's it, my okay. friends, for Emeritus Rex this week. We hope to see you next week. And have a decent Nittelnacht. Take care. <laughs> Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Forty years of this is Emeritus Rex. I'm a, I got to do it again now. <laughs> I can't. Sorry.